You are listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. Welcome to this episode of the UI podcast, where we will be discussing Dr. Bijan Khajepur's new paper, Anatomy of the Iranian Economy, where he will explain to us how the Iranian economy works, its structures, and why it is in such a bad shape, despite the fact that it has so many resources at its disposal, both in terms of gas, oil, but also human resources. This episode was recorded on April 7th, and with me are Dr. Bijan Khajepur and Wilhelmina Hinström, the UI MENA program intern. Hi everyone, uh, Bijan Khajapur. Uh, I am uh, an Iranian-Austrian uh, based in Vienna, but I have spent most of my professional life in Iran, uh, working as, a, as an economist and a, a strategy consultant. And I followed the economic and also energy sector developments in Iran very closely. Wilhelmina? Hello everyone, my name is Wilhelm Einstein. I'm working at the North African Middle East program at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. So let's get to the paper. Um, this is a very rich paper, uh, which both uh, gets into the structures of the economy, but also how things can play out in the near future. So let's begin with the basic foundations of the economy, which you lay out in the paper. What are the main sectors of the Iranian economy? Everyone thinks it's an oil economy, but is that really the case? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, it's interesting when we look at the, the distribution of the different sectors inside the Iranian uh, economy, we realize that the economy is actually a service-based economy. Uh, depending on which year we look at, something between 45% to 55% of the Iranian economy are actually service sectors. The petroleum sector is very important and historically has been the most sector in Iran because it obviously has contributed very strongly to the hard currency generation in the Iranian economy. Uh, but when we look at the share of the petroleum sector in the economy, it's about, again, depending on the year we look at, between uh, 12 to 20 percent of the economy. And when we look at that size, then we have also agriculture that is between 10 to 15 percent of the economy. We have industry, we have mining and construction. So if you wanted to focus uh, on one sector, it's service sector, but the real statement is it's a very diverse economy. So that's obviously very important, not only for the domestic developments, but also in how sensitive the country is to different variations. Uh, of oil price and so on, that it has such a large domestic market that it can, uh, in a sense, fall back on. Absolutely. Uh, right now, we, we estimate the population to be 83 million in Iran. And when we look at uh, the, the domestic population and also the immediate bordering uh, regions to Iran, uh, it's, there is a huge domestic and regional market that the Iranian economy is directly connected to uh, and uh, that diverse uh, set of economic activities especially service sector is definitely much less vulnerable to to oil price fluctuations than than many other oil economies are 
Now, if that is one of the characteristics of the Iranian economy, there are obviously more, uh, but one of those that really stand out is one that you point to, which is that this is a country that has both a semi-state, a state, and a government sector, let alone a private sector. Could you just walk us through what the nuances of those differences are? Yeah, it's, it's important because uh, in every other country, when we look at the, uh, the public and private sector definitions, uh, the public sector is usually controlled by the government. So the government either owns or heavily regulates specific sectors. And as such, there is an interplay between the, the government and the non-governmental sector, the, the, the private sector in most countries. In the case of Iran, we have significant parts of the economy that are not under the control of the government, uh, but they're also not private. And, and what they are is that these are uh, religious, revolutionary, and military organizations uh, that own economic enterprises, are engaged in economic activity, but are not accountable to the, to the government. This partly derives from the, the historical tradition in the country that also existed in other countries, that you had a very strong religious um, set of foundations that owned property because they owned endowments and, and other economic activities but also has emerged as a result of the very uh, unique political structure after the 1979 revolution with the supreme leader and a number of institutions not uh, being accountable to the government. As such, we have parallel institutions or parallel economic sectors, and that creates a tension because uh, if the government tries to benefit, to, to come up with a policy to benefit the non-governmental sector, then the most likely beneficiaries are not the private sector enterprises, but the semi-state sector enterprises. And that creates a disadvantage for the private sector. In general, there is a disadvantage for the private sector because it's the weakest element of the three. So being semi-state, government, and private. Uh, and on top of it, we have the situation that a lot of the semi-state institutions have both political power but also access to resources for example bank credit and, and, and import and export licenses that the private sector does not have access to so you do you have a very um, uh, difficult or challenging uh, uh, investment in environment business environment for the real private sector which is obviously one of the uh, shortcomings in the Iranian economy because the private sector is actually the main provider of jobs in the economy. Uh, and my personal focus has always been on, the, on understanding the situation of the private sector. In many situations, the private sector is, is sandwiched between these two um, elements. So the government on the one side that issues the licenses or tries to come up with uh, uh, with regulations to, to help the private sector, but on the other side, uh, a, a semi-state sector that plays uh, the part of the private when it needs to, and then plays the part of the being the state when, it's, when it requires that access to power. So it's a very, very challenging environment for, for private sector activity. 
Um, could you explain more about the role of the IRGC, uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, um, and probably how you see the future um, in the coming years? Okay, so um, first of all, we need to understand uh, what happened that the IRGC became uh, a major economic player in the country. We should never forget Iran went through a very difficult and long war in the 1980s, the Iran-Iraq war uh, between 1980 and 1988. In those years, to support the war effort, um, the, uh, the government uh, created a lot of capacity from production, industrial production, to engineering, to construction capacities that the Iranian military the regular army and the revolutionary guards. So both these organizations uh, were uh, receiving a lot of uh, resources to build capacities to fight the Iran-Iraq war. When the war ended, and gradually those capacities emerged into the overall industrial and economic activities in the country, especially in the construction sector. Um, but over time, I mean, if you have an economic capacity, and that has happened in other countries as well, I mean, look at China, look at even the U.S., I mean, the, 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 the course of engineers in the U.S. are a similar organization, um, that these capacities uh, started developing their own corporate structures. Those corporate structures have in the meantime become a major network of companies, and uh, uh, on top of the original capacities, new capacities emerged. For example, in the meantime, uh, companies affiliated or owned by the Revolutionary Guards uh, are, um, are the biggest players in the Iranian telecom sector. But what is important um, in analyzing the economic activity of the Revolutionary Guards and also uh, in, in understanding the future of it is that we are not just talking about one uh, military institutions and its affiliated companies. We are talking about a major network of um, foundations, uh, cooperatives, businesses, even businesses owned by former commanders of the Revolutionary Guards that are not necessarily directly owned by the Revolutionary Guards, but they are part of this network. And this network uh, is growing in size, partly because uh, of its own capabilities, as I said, of its access to, to resources, uh, but also as a, as a consequence of the gradual privatization of, uh, of government, com government owned companies that have gradually been taken over uh, by companies affiliated with the Revolutionary Guard. So, if we only talk about the Revolutionary Guards as a military institution, there could be ways of limiting these, uh, these capacities and their growth. For example, in the first term of the Rouhani government, uh, the Revolutionary Guards as a military institution and the government signed a contract or signed an agreement that sort of created a, a minimum limit for projects that Revolutionary Guards companies were allowed to 
to enter into. You can create that kind of a limit. You can create for the institution, the military institution, but you cannot create that for the network. Because as I said, there are many companies, you, you, have, you have cooperatives at the so-called uh, Cooperatives Foundation, Bonyade Taobon, which belongs to the former commanders of the Revolutionary Guards. So on paper, it does not belong to the Revolutionary Guards, but it's one of the major shareholders of key companies in Europe. I would say not just the Revolutionary Guards companies, because you have similar structures also for the regular army. We have a, the, the pension fund of the regular army is a big player in the Iranian economy. Uh, you have religious institutions, you have religious foundations, revolutionary foundations like the Mostazafan Foundation. The, the cluster is called the semi-state institutions. These institutions, in my view, will grow parallel to the gradual decline of the actual government. Also right now, uh, one of the debates that exist in Iran right now to try to fill the, the financial gap as a result of the coronavirus crisis is to sell more and more government assets. Well, these assets will mainly be acquired by the semi-state institutions, which means that they will grow. And the, the larger the, uh, their, their share of the Iranian economy and corporate activities, the, the more influence they will have in, in a number of decisions. So considering the importance and the growth of the importance of the IRGC and the network surrounding it, one of the factors that has played a role aggravating the speed of their growth as a share of the economy and importance politically has been the effect and impact of sanctions. Yeah, so, so um, obviously we have had different phases and, and, and different approaches to, to sanctioning Iran. If we look at the, the emergence of the, those sanctions that are most hurtful today, they really were designed and, and it gradually implemented first in the 1990s, initially against the Iranian petroleum sector. And the, the original design of the sanctions and the way they emerged were mainly to weaken Iran. I mean, that's why it made a lot of sense to initially target the petroleum sector, so to, to, to undermine investments in the petroleum sector, later to undermine the export of, of Iranian crude oil and, and, and gas products. Uh, but in the meantime, they have really reached a level where almost any type of, let's say, large-scale activity and its financing and its insurance, et cetera, et cetera, are, are targeted. I know that there, there is a lot of focus, especially in the, in the sort of blacklisting of Iranian entities, that there is a lot of focus on RGC uh, ownership, RGC affiliation, and so on. But... I would still argue that the main target of the, of the sanctions really undermine the overall power of the country as an, as an economic player. We should never forget Iran's main claim to power in its own strategies has been through technological and economic power, not necessarily through military power. I mean, it, when you look at the actual policies of, of Iran, especially the so-called 20-year vision document, uh, vision 2025, is mainly focused on, on generating power, regional power, international positioning through, through economic and technological power. And these sanctions have, have completely undermined that, that prospect. 
both in economic terms, but also technological terms. When you say foreign, when you undermine foreign investment in the country, you also undermine the, the flow of funds and the flow of technology to the country. The mission, you can call it, of the Revolutionary Guards in, in the past decade has been to, to implement what they call forward defense and, and, and to you know, empower Iran regionally by, by engaging different, different uh, proxies in, their, in, in the words of the, the Western approach, but in their own words, basically friends and, and, and allies in the region. But essentially, uh, it's clear that the Revolutionary Guards have played a, a significant role in the, in the regional uh, policies and regional activities. Now, the naive nature of these sanctions, uh, when we look at it from an economic uh, point of view, uh, is the fact that undermining the Iranian economy, which is the real uh, result of, the, of these sanctions, does not necessarily undermine the Revolutionary Guards. The Revolutionary Guards operate in a completely sort of lopsided uh, logic. Their power would be limited only if the central government of Iran, if the governmental sector of Iran is more powerful. The agreement on limiting RGC presence in governmental contracts only happened because the Rouhani government was in a political position to impose that. Uh, now, if you weaken the government, you open space for a lot of activities by the semi-state sector, whether they are economic activities or whether they are parts of the informal economy. When you, when you open the space for smuggling, then you actually empower uh, elements of the, of the Iranian economy that are most likely linked to the semi-state sector. So weakening the economy and weakening the central government of Iran does not necessarily weaken the revolutionary guards. Uh, and that's why these sanctions, if their intention was to weaken the revolutionary guards and to uh, reduce their ability to engage the region and, and implement their own policies in the region, they have actually backfired and they, they have led to a situation where the trajectory is that they will actually gain more and more economic and political power because they, have, they find a lot more space, both a legal space, but also in the informal economy to, to empower themselves. As you said, if you look at the American especially sanctions uh, during the Obama years, for instance, there was a clear um, aim of trying to force Iran into negotiating on the nuclear issue and obviously trying to force them to negotiate from a weak position. Now, th those posterings in the end resulted in a nuclear agreement, which the Trump administration then has withdrawn from and tried its best to undermine and destroy. So in a sense, the sanctions that the Trump administration returned on Iran have been much harsher, but also without any clear end goal, except for the one that you mentioned yourself. So, so far they have not resulted in any kind of negotiation strategy or process that at least we can see from the outside. Now, these sanctions uh, where at least one of the many stated goals from the US administration has been regime change, has had a devastating effect on the Iranian uh, currency 
and the exchange rate and the general trust and faith in the ability of the economy uh, to, in a sense, continue to function. And this was even before the corona crisis. But in order to, to kind of disentangle that a bit, could you explain to us the, the, the whole story of the many Iranian exchange rates that have lessened to some degree or increased in numbers and are three at the moment, if I understand correctly? Yes, I mean, Iran, one of the main uh, shortcomings of the economic realities in Iran is this so-called multi-tiered exchange rate system. The problem is that the exchange rate is not an economic construct, but rather a political construct. What I mean is that because the government has had, um, in a way, historically, a monopoly on uh, generating hard currency through oil exports, how this hard currency was distributed domestically became part of the political equation. So the exchange rate of how this hard currency revenues would be passed on to economic players or to eco the economy as a whole was a tool of government power. And even though the economic realities have changed, meaning that we don't have the sort of petroleum exports are not necessarily the the single source of hard currency for the economy, and the government is also not the only player in, in exporting activity, even though that has changed, the, the principal idea of using the exchange rate as a, as a political tool hasn't changed. So the, what we have right now is a governmental exchange rate, which is only used for what they call the importation of essential goods. So foodstuffs, pharmaceuticals, and a few other uh, essential goods that relate again to bo both the food and the pharmaceutical sector. Then, because obviously that rate is artificial in a way, it does not reflect the real uh, value of the Iranian currency, we have two higher rates, much higher rates. In fact, right now, the governmental rate is only 25% of the higher rates which in a way is the, the most used platform for corruption, because if obviously if you have access to the, to the lower rate and you can sell the currency that you get at the lower rate at the higher rate, you quadruple your assets within a few days. Uh, and it's sad and it's happening in, in the Iranian economy. So the other two rates are, one is basically a, an exchange mechanism for importers and exporters. So exporters generate hard currency and they, they sell their hard currency to the importers in, a, in an official way. And that is mainly used, obviously, by those who export and import. But obviously, you also have a third group of economic players who don't fit into that. For example, if, if you are importing something without having access to those exporters' uh, hard currency, you need you need a market, and that market is the, the free market. Uh, and right now, the, the rates for the exporters and importers called NEMA, and the third rate uh, are only a couple of percent, percentage points apart. So they, they actually uh, are very close. But as I said, the, the differential between the governmental exchange rate and the higher uh, exchange rate is huge. Now, one of the reasons uh, they are very hesitant to correct the, the lower exchange rate 
is its immediate impact, especially on the lower income classes, because, because uh, a lot of those essential goods are also subsidized goods. We should not forget both foodstuffs and pharmaceuticals are, are heavily subsidized, partly because of the exchange rate, partly because of other uh, subsidy mechanisms. So they are very afraid of, of adjusting the rate and by extension uh, leading to, to inflation, uh, which will mainly hit the lower income classes. The Iranian government did start a, a, a process of removing these subsidies. 10 years ago, it started in 2010. The eventual plan was to, over time, adjust the, uh, the exchange rate, but also lift the subsidies, gradually creating a, a more uh, realistic economic picture for exchange rates, but also inflation and so on. But that process was disrupted because of the impact of sanctions, because of the collapse of the Iranian exports, first, first time in 2010, 2011, and then uh, also in the past couple of years. So the idea of, of adjusting the, the exchange rates and also introducing subsidy reforms have been there, but they have been, um, uh, they have been disrupted by external pressure and other uh, negative consequences of sanctions. But I also suspect that uh, there are a lot of power centers that are opposed to unification of the exchange rates because then one of their main sources of corrupt practices will be removed. So um, given the tensions between the U.S. and Iran and the U.S. sanctions against Iran, um, I would like to discuss a little more about the role of the European Union. Um, so last week, the German foreign ministry announced that INSTEX, their Iran trade mechanism backed by nine European states, had completed its first transaction by exporting medical goods from Europe to Iran. Um, even if a lot of work remains, this is clearly a historic development, especially for Europe, as it now stands up against the U.S. sanctions. Um, could you help us understand how much of an impact this mechanism will have for Iran and its economy, and if there is any potential that this could lead to something? I think the first part of your question is general. I mean, it doesn't really depend on, on Instex. I can tell you with a lot of accuracy that when the Iranians restarted nuclear negotiations in 2012-2013, that their main goal was to reconnect to Europe. They were not looking to reconnect or, or to normalize relations with the U.S., the strategic goal was to use Europe as a source of technology, as a source of capital, and as a platform to become more and more integrated in, in the global economy. Well, that collapsed when the Europeans uh, started sanctioning Iran in the late 2000s. And as I said, the desire was to normalize ties with Europe, to be able to rely on European technology, European cooperation, European markets, etc. So the expectation from the Iranian perspective was that Europe would stick to, to the nuclear deal, to the JCPOA, and to continue to promote uh, technological and economic cooperation with Iran, investments into the country, and so on. And it's very interesting. It was also symbolic. I mean, the first major investment deals that were signed after the implementation of the JCPOA were with European companies. It was with the French company Total in, in, in the gas sector, it was with Peugeot and, and, and Citroën and so on. So 
when, when the European companies withdrew from Iran as a result of US sanctions, there was a lot of disappointment in Iran. And to be fair to the Iranians, their communication to the Europeans was, we will stick to the deal if Europe delivers in especially economic terms. Well, they waited for a year. Europe made some promises, but obviously it was extremely difficult for European governments to force European companies to continue their engagement with Iran. And I can tell you that a lot of European companies were more concerned about the unpredictability of the Trump administration rather than about the legal aspects of, of US sanctions. Unpredictability was was far too bigger, bigger risk than, than anything else. Anyhow, it, uh, the situation in Iran was that the desired outcome of the nuclear deal did not take place. Instex, which is a, a mechanism for payments, is only a very, very small tool in the set of expectations that Iran has. We can always sit and argue that the Iranian expectations were misplaced to start with, but the fact is that Instex will facilitate some of the uh, trade flows that already exist. I mean, if you say Instex will only deal with uh, humanitarian trade, pharmaceuticals, foodstuffs, well, they were all already taking place. What Instex will do is to reduce the cost and, and the operational burdens of, of these transactions. Instex would only be really interesting for Iran if it starts processing transactions related to those sectors that are sanctioned by the Americans but not sanctioned by the Europeans. I don't see that happening right now, mainly because the companies are not, uh, are not willing to take that risk. The big question is, and this is definitely an expectation in, in Iran, that you know that European uh, governments should be, become more proactive to encourage European businesses to, to trade with Iran, to, to you know, engage Iranian companies, even sometimes engage them in third countries. Iran is a big player in, in Iraq. Why not you know, promote uh, uh, European-Iranian cooperation in some of the Iraqi projects, some of the Afghan projects, Central Asia projects? So the opportunities are there, but from the Iranian perspective, there is a lot of passivity on the European side. Instex is a positive gesture, is a positive sign, but it's not going to fully respond to Iran's expectations. And whether the Europeans will ever fulfill these expectations is a big question, but I guess right now there are so many other issues and priorities such as coronavirus and the question whether Trump will get reelected and so on, that everyone will be in a wait and see mode. The coronavirus is now uh, basically wreaking havoc across the globe. And the primary concern, of course, is how many people are going to get sick and how many are going to die. But the secondary concern, which is also looming large, is the economic impact, which is already uh, evident, but most importantly, will be structurally for some time, especially for economies that are much more vulnerable, like the Iranian one. So could you tell us briefly what you think is happening in Iran regarding the virus and its economic impact. As you said, the, the Iranian economy is vulnerable part, partly because of the impact of the sanctions, but also partly because a lot of internal uh, structural issues, issues such as mismanagement, 
incompetence, corruption, and so on. Focusing on incompetence, we have to remind ourselves that when the, when the corona crisis emerged in January, Iran was just a couple of weeks into a major crisis of incompetence because of the shooting down of the Ukrainian plane in early January, where the public as, uh, as a whole had, had lost its, its trust and confidence in the government. And I think one of the first issues in, in the case of Iran is how this lack of confidence, this lack of trust hampered the initial stages of managing the crisis. I think they are just now, three months into the crisis, trying to manage the economic fallout because the economic fallout will be huge. We mentioned it earlier, 50% of the economy is based on services and, and obviously the service sectors, tourism, transportation, all of these different services, trade services are majorly hit by the crisis. In fact, some economists are estimating that the Iranian economy will, uh, will suffer a 20% decline in, in the current Iranian year, which would be huge. I mean, it would mean major unemployment, major collapse of Iranian businesses. Now, how can Iran respond to this? The options are very limited because the when you look at all the different bailouts in the other countries, especially the more developed countries, the mechanism is very, very clear. The, the government uses either its resources or it just issues sovereign debt. You know, they issue bonds on, on the international capital markets and so on. Well, Iran doesn't have that possibility, that option. The next option is to apply for international loans that, well, they applied for a $5 billion a dollar loan from the International Monetary Fund. Probably that loan will, um, will not materialize because of U.S. rejection within the IMF, even though US, the U.S. cannot veto it, but it has enough political muscle to, 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 re, to force the IMF to reject it, which means the Iranian government is left with its own resources. They have, they have the National Development Fund. They can uh, sort of use some of those resources or the domestic debt market. But the domestic debt market is also so uh, underdeveloped in a way that there will be major inflation. So whatever path you choose, there will be a major inflationary or unemployment or, or other, other negative impact. So it's going to be extremely difficult. Iran has some res unused resources. The Iranian diaspora is a great resource. But for that, they would have to open up the business environment. They have to allow some investment flows. And then obviously they have to deal with the, with the sanctions as well. So it's going to be a very, very challenging year. But I can tell you that the Iranians have managed worse crises in the past. And this will, they will survive as well. So thank you very much for ending on at least something that looks like a positive note uh, and that there is some hope for the future. And with that, I'd really like to thank Bijan and Wilhelmina for participating in this conversation about the developments and structures of the Iranian economy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube, where you can watch our seminars and interviews. Catch you later.